had a, a wonderful time. If you're, if you're unfamiliar with we, my wife and I, we've been on, and we brought our kids too. We were on sabbatical for the last uh, three months. And so we are, uh, we, this is my first time back preaching. I'm way out of practice. Um, in fact, I got up in the pre-service and actually had completely forgotten the microphone. So I was like, oh yeah, I knew there was something. Um, but no, it is really, really wonderful to be back. We really missed you guys. Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about our sabbatical uh, this evening. I want to talk about what, what I learned, um, which is a lot, but I've boiled it down to three points. Before I do that, I want to thank you. Thank you so, so, so very much uh, for allowing Tab and I to do this. Uh, it was unbelievably needed, and I wasn't even aware of how much it was needed until uh, we'd been away. Um, it is no, it shouldn't be a surprise that um, church planting, pastoring in general, it is the most rewarding job. I'm convinced it's the most rewarding job uh, or responsibility or calling you could ever have in your life. And I am truly, truly um, a believer in that. It is also one of the most difficult things you could ever do in your life. Uh, I was talking to a friend recently of mine that we've been friends for 25 years and he said, uh, he says, wow, he goes, uh, your church going well? I said, yeah, I, said, I really love it. Like, it's the most fun I've ever had in ministry. And when I say that, I've been basically in full-time ministry for 26 years in one form or another. And uh, I said that to somebody this summer, and they go, wow, you've had a lot of fun in ministry. And I was like, I have. This has been the greatest thing in the world. And he goes, yeah, I can tell your hair hasn't gone white yet. And he goes, everyone I know, when they become a pastor, within two years, their hair is completely white. I said, no, mine just all fell out. It didn't have time to turn white. It just left. Um... But it can also be a very tough job. It's a job that is demanding. It's a job that your entire faith and belief system to the core believe in. I've had a lot of jobs in my life, but only ministry and specifically pastoring does it really entwine everything of what you believe and what you are. And uh, you don't do, I don't believe you are a good pastor unless you really love the people that God brings to you. Um, and so I... I it's something where you have the, this love and this relationships with the people that you get to serve and, and you get to be entwined in so many different aspects of people's lives, whether you want to or not, um, and, and love them. And so for eight years, uh, I've been the full-time lead pastor of Hope Church, which was weird the first year because I still lived in Virginia, and I tell people, I'm a full-time pastor of a church in South Carolina. I live here, though. It's quite a commute um, before we moved down here. Um, but leading up the last year, if you've been with us for a while, you know it's not a secret that it has been a tough, tough year. Uh, we had to move church buildings three times. We had to move our offices four times. Uh, we had staff members I've known my entire life leave. I've had staff members I've known most of my adult life leave. People that, uh, a lot of people that were our core team members that you're very close with who packed up their life and moved here with us left. Um, it was tough. And uh, so when Tab and I left, the day we left, we were literally driving out of Somerville, and it was just like this lull, quiet, and I just said, let's not talk about anything bad that's happened. <laughs> let's just really focus on the awesome things we've been able to see over the last eight years. And uh, so we drove, and we took a while. We, we were traveling for a couple of weeks before we ended up in the Adirondack Mountains in, in New York. And uh, it was really special. It's the town that both Tab and I grew up in. 
uh, at different times, where we went to college, where we met Derek and Valeria, where uh, we had so many friends there, and we didn't know how many of our friends would be coming into town while we were there. We, the house we stayed at um, was bordering the property of a huge um, campground that is owned by the ministry, which they then bought property across the street and down a little bit from the house, which was also part of the campground. Then right across the street from us was their children's camp, this ranch and ranger camp that the boys got to go to rodeos every Friday night. And then next to that is the college that uh, the World Life International Ministries, where we, or Derek and Valeria and me and Tad, where we all met. And so the boys had this unbelievable playground. It's right on this lake. They got to go to the town beach every day. Uh, they also own uh, a couple miles up the road in the middle of the lake. They own a 47-acre island in the middle of the lake, which is their teen camp. And on Saturdays, there's nobody there. And uh, my friend who runs the camp let us just take a boat over. He gave me his golf cart, and Rock and Bodie both got to catch their first fish off the island right where I used to go fishing when I was there. So a very, very special time. And to that, I want to say thank you. That is memories that my children will have the rest of their lives. Um, that's memories that Tab and I got to share with them. I wasn't planning on getting emotional about this. Um, but while there, I got to see so many friends who are pastors or in ministry or uh, serve in different places, and I got to see the uh, worn out and the tired and the exhausted um, we kind of kiddingly around the house we stayed at, we called it Hibbard's House of Rejects because people that came up to vacation, they would just come over to our house at night where they just felt like they could just say, hey, things are not going well for me or things are not going well for this or, um, and it was great. Um, I think it happened five different times the next morning we would get a text from people saying, thank you so much for letting us come over last night. I haven't laughed that hard in years and I really needed that. Um, and it wasn't us, it was the group of people. Some of us had gone to college together, uh, guys that I graduated with in college that I haven't seen since who were in my dorm, meeting them and their families. Um, it was just really an amazing time. But in all of that, realizing how thankful I am for this church family, how thankful Tab and I are for this church family, uh, how much we felt loved, how special it is. And, I, and I'm not saying this kiddingly because I saw it firsthand with dear friends of mine, how special it is to miss your church and want to go back to it and how special it is to have your church miss you, because that is not always the case. And so it was very, very special to be back here last week, just sitting here, back with what we feel like is our family, and it's very special to be back up here talking to you this evening, feeling with what is my family. And so I can't tell you enough how much we love you. We say that at the end of every service, but I mean it so heartfelt. We love you so, so much. So what I want to do tonight, that was just a long intro. But all this, I've been listening to the podcast. You've been easy. These guys are short. The guest speakers are like 20, 25 minutes. I'm like, great. I had one of my friends tell me, he goes, Rob, when you have this many guest speakers in, it might be better if you don't like set up what they're preaching and just let them preach. Like every pastor has like a home run message that that's like their go-to when they get asked to go preach. So maybe in the future, that's what you do is you just have them come in and preach their home run message. I was like, wait a second. You want me to have three months of guys come in and hit home runs, and then I come back. That's like watching somebody bunt at a home run derby. Like, all the excitement of that is what you want me to have on myself. So, uh, I'm so thankful for the guys that came and filled in for me. Um, just some great guys. I've been able to, again, follow along. But yeah, they, they don't go very long, so don't get used to that. Um, 
But also, um, on top of that, I wanted to go through three things that I learned about myself. I know that sounds unbelievably selfish, but I, I wanted you to know up front that these are three things I learned about myself over the time of sabbatical. Sabbatical is way different than uh, vacation. Um, sabbatical was a time where, where we got to, we didn't have a television in the house. We spent a lot of time just as a family. Uh, every morning I was able to just spend hours uh, hour to two hours just reading God's Word and studying it, and I didn't have a message I was preparing for. It wasn't a workbook. It was just the words of life that I could. It, we took time to pray. We tried to implement different things into our life that, uh, without realizing it, things had just gotten out of control um, in our lives. For me personally, um, I was the heaviest I ever was when I left for sabbatical in my life. Um, I had tendonitis in my knees for the last two years. The May before we left, I had two kidney stones. I tore the meniscus in my left knee, and I had tendonitis. Uh, I wasn't sleeping. I realized I had become so addicted to coffee, like I was just surviving on coffee. I was taking more and more meetings. I had the feeling that everything relied on me, uh, and so I was just going at an, a pace that you cannot sustain. And uh, it was a couple weeks in where I realized like, just how bad I had just been not thinking about those things or, or seeing those things happen in my life, even though very good friends of mine were pointing them out regularly. And my people were saying, like, I'm concerned about you. No, I'm fine. Give me another cup of coffee. I'll be great. Uh, and so just from like a personal standpoint, this isn't part of the message, but um, I actually have uh, lost a little over 30 pounds since when we left. I've actually, this is good. I say that and people are like, oh, that's great. And then the next statement, I was like, no way. I quit drinking coffee. Yeah, that's the shocker, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, and uh, so now I actually sleep when you're supposed to, um, and I know when I'm tired. Uh, it sounds funny, but it's a real thing. Um, and uh, the tendonitis in my knees is completely, I have no more pain in my knees. I uh, just instituted just a lot of just healthier habits in my, in my own life. So this message is a very personal message um, from me to you. Um, what I'm going to share, but I think uh, this might be things that you're struggling with as well, so hopefully we can apply these together. If you're not, that's great. Well done. Um, so here's three things that I learned well on sabbatical. Number one, I don't pray enough. I don't pray enough. Um, I always think of the, one of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, and I'm not going to try to like redo his bit because they get paid lots of money to do it, and I can't do it. But he has a bit where he talks about going to the gym and you see that muscle-bound person and they don't have any more fat to lose and they're exercising their hearts out and how he wants to go up to them and be like, you did it. You can go home now. Mission accomplished. Like, you did it. And when I think about how much we're supposed to pray, that's what I always go back to is, what is praying enough? Now, if you've mastered that, and you're thinking, oh, I know, I do that. Please, talk to me afterwards. I have so many questions for you. So if you are taking notes, and I hope that you are, you, if you are struggling with the thought of, oh, maybe I don't pray enough, then on your notes just write, I don't pray enough. If you do pray enough, and you're concerned about me, just write, Rob doesn't pray enough on your notes. Uh, that's Rob with two Bs. The second B is silent. Rob doesn't pray enough. And then please add that to your list that you are accomplishing of things to pray for every day. I would greatly appreciate that. 
but I don't pray enough. And as I thought about that, and uh, the other thing that Tab and I did, because we don't have a television, we had wonderful conversations with each other every evening, but we also uh, read a lot. I was able to catch up on a bunch of books that we've been putting off reading or our lives have just been too busy. And just reading, uh, I think, four or five books on prayer and just uh, really understanding even better what does that look like to have a, a better prayer life? What does it look like to really pray correctly? Um, and then just the reflection and, and studying God's Word and hearing back. And I've narrowed it down to two reasons why I don't pray enough. And again, this might be true for you. I don't know. That's up to you. Number one, I don't pray because I'm selfish. I am very, very selfish. I have a very high opinion of myself. Uh, And that's reflected because when I don't pray, when I don't go to God, if that isn't the first thing that I do, no matter what I run into, if that isn't the first thing I run to in the morning, it's quite simple. I rely on myself. I've got this. If I'm not praying to God, even though I might not say those words, it's simple. I've got this. God, you sound like a fantastic backup. Like you're the creator of everything. You know all-knowing. You're in control of everything. You love me. You sent your son to die for me. I can have eternal life with you. That's all great, but obviously I'm going to run the show here. Like I got this. So I don't need to pray because I am selfish, and that's what keeps me, one of the main things that keeps me from praying is because I have such a firm belief in myself. If things then continue to go bad, then I will go to God. And if they get really bad, I'll ask other people to pray for me. And I'll try to do it privately so they don't actually know that I'm failing at something. Uh, I'll just use cool words to make it sound like everything's all right. I'd just be nice if you prayed for me. Why? Because I'm selfish and I want to make sure that I look good. Which brings me to my second point. I don't pray because I'm prideful. I was really hoping to have this loud gasp. You're like, no, not you, Rob. That can't be. I don't pray because I'm prideful. Oh, that's much better. (laughs) Here's, Here's why. I think I'm awesome. I think I have got it all together. I've spent my entire life, all 24 years, that's, I'm not actually 24, that's the joke. (laughs) I've spent my entire life convincing myself of how awesome I am. Um, And again, that's not something we would normally say about ourselves, but I realize that when I go to myself, I am placing myself above God. How prideful does one have to be to seek out earthly, human, self-centered wisdom than to go to a sovereign God that is in control of all things? The God that created heaven and earth, the God that uniquely, intimately designed me the way he wanted me, the God that allowed me to go through the things in my life that I've gone through, both good and bad, the things that I've chosen to do, the things that were done to me, all of those things I can trust to God or it allows me to trust myself that much more. And again, God becomes my backup. When something goes wrong and I trust my own wisdom, and when something goes wrong for somebody else and the first thing I think is, oh, I should be the one that helps them, 
when I fail to point people towards Jesus as the healer and the Prince of Peace, when I fail to point other people towards God and, and instead give them what I think, that's all pride. That's all me thinking that I know better than the Almighty God. So I don't pray enough. I don't pray because I'm selfish. I don't pray because I'm prideful. I'm going to get into this in a moment, but the other thing is, well, we're pretty busy. Um, which I really like John Piper's quote. This is from several years ago, but he said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. The reason he used Twitter and Facebook was that was the only two social media platforms available when he said this. Now, luckily, we have so many more to really busy ourselves up with. And even then, that's kind of a prideful thing. You'll hear me say, like, oh, I don't have social media. I got rid of that six years ago. Yeah, ask me about my sports apps and my fantasy football and how much time I spend on those. There's plenty of distractions. Which brings me to point number two I learned about myself on sabbatical, which is I don't rest well. I don't rest well. Again, Rob with two Bs if you got this handled. If not, just write down, I don't rest well. But even on a deeper level, and this actually happened back in the spring, we were going through a book, some of the men from church, and it was talking about self-righteousness. And you've heard me say I'm a recovering self-righteous person, which means I'm still self-righteous. I've just tried to hide it better. Um, but it was actually like all of us are self-righteous in some form, and it's usually something that we do well. And it had all these questions that you had to walk through and ask yourself, and I realized like my self-righteousness displays itself in the area of busyness and work, of doing. And so praying, going back, praying is hard because I'm not accomplishing a physical task. Reading the Bible is easy for me. That sounds bad, but I really enjoy reading the Bible. I, I spend a lot of time in God's Word, but I'm accomplishing. There's chapters and there's verses, and I know numerically how much I've read, and I know how many books I've read. Praying is just praying. It's not busy. In fact, how many times have you said, oh, do you have a minute? Yeah, I was just praying. I don't mind it being interrupted. Or, well, I don't have time to pray because I'm doing all these other things. So my self-righteousness in the area of being busy, having enough meetings, working hard, outworking, all of those things are designed to make me feel good about how much I'm doing. It's not actually glorifying God if I'm not taking the proper time to rest. Uh, let me be very, very clear. This is wrong. That's wrong. So I want to talk for uh, a minute about what is rest and what is not. By the way, this is just like part one. Next week will be part two, so I'm just kind of hitting on stuff pretty quick. It'll be more in-depth next week as we continue on. But um, I want to talk about what, um, what rest is and what rest is not. Rest is not busying yourself up doing other things that don't provide spiritual rest. Um, I have this thought, and I, I, just, I thought of it this afternoon, and I'm not sure it's complete, so if you want to argue with me on it, great, I'm, that's fine. I don't think we can, if, if you have made Jesus the forgiver of your sin and the leader of your life, if you say you know Christ, I don't think that you can find true spiritual rest, as the Bible talks about it, doing the same things that people that don't know Christ do, if that makes sense. If we're, really, if we're really seeking after the type of rest that, that God promises, then I don't think that 
seeking after the same things that people that don't have a relationship with Christ or have rejected Christ, if we're doing the same things that they do, I don't know that that's where we can find true rest. Um, going back to John Piper, he said that it isn't sin that keeps us from doing what God commands, it's Satan making us busy with good things. Satan loves to give us everything he can to keep us busy and fooled. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 11 with me, if you will. I realize I missed my first passage for point number one. We'll come back to that at the end, and I'll make it sound like that's where it was supposed to be, and on the podcast, we'll switch it. <laughs> I'm new at this. It's been a while. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, Jesus just finishes praying to and the Son, and then he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We just preached about this back in the spring. We went through this passage. If you remember, for months I was saying, okay, this summer I want you to read the book Gentle and Lowly. I said that week after week, so go ahead and raise your hand if you read the book Gentle and Lowly this summer. One. Well done. Nope, two. You got two. I'm not going to tell you their names because then they'd get all self-righteous. Just kidding. But I've always read this passage and seen, oh, true rest is found in Christ. True rest is found in Christ. And for some reason, it never has jumped out at me until just earlier this week when it says, and I will find and find rest for your souls. This is soulful rest. Your soul represented the innermost part of your being and what you are and, and what you believed. And so this kind of rest, if we are finding rest in Christ, one, we have to turn to him. We have to confess our sins and make him the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life and, and follow him. That's step one. But then we, we spent the entire Old Testament as one of the commandments is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We had messages back in the spring on what is rest, what is Sabbath rest, what is uh, sabbatical even. This, this idea that it was something that God knew as created beings. He knew that our sinful nature would want to busy us up so much that we would forget spending time dedicated to God. And so he made it a commandment to the Jewish nation of, no, you will rest and you will spend that time uh, refocusing on me. I've created you. I've provided salvation for you. I've given you everything that is good I have provided for you. And in return, I would like you to stop. To stop and refocus so that you can be aligned with me. Actually, we're going to jump back to the Lord's Prayer right now. Going back to Matthew chapter 6. They're asking him, they say, Jesus, please teach us how to pray. And this is what he responds. Chapter 6 um, says, this then, starting in verse 9, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Understand, the entire beginning of this prayer is entirely God-focused. Our Father, this term of reverence, this term of you created us. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or 
holy or reverent or whatever is the greatest title or honor that you could give someone is how we are to look at God and put him in his rightful place so that we remember our rightful place and that we are here to serve him. Then it's your kingdom come. In the past, we've said you are either spending your life building your kingdom or God's kingdom, and you can't build both at the same time. Your kingdom come, not mine. That's where that selfishness drops. That's where that now your, what your priority list is becomes my priority list, that I center everything that I'm doing here on earth for your glory to build your kingdom. So your will can be done, not mine. Most of you are not like me. I have a strong will. Ah, thank you, Abby. <laughs> we have a will that is always battling God's will. How do I know this? I've read the Bible, and I've watched humans, and I know myself. We are constantly battling what God's will is for us and what we want to do. And so this prayer, the entire, as Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he's saying it's about God. It's about worshiping him. It's about us realigning ourselves with what he wants and what he desires and what he calls us to do. It isn't until verse 11 that we just say, give us our daily bread. Give us what we need, not what we want. Give us, if it be your will, give us what you want for this day and this day alone. I'm not going to put my focus and fears on the future. It's going to be what you provide for me because it's all about you. Ed Welch says, most often we pray for our happiness, not our holiness. How often do we say, God, make me more holy so that I can be pleasing in your sight that I obey you? No, it's, hey, God, guess what I want? God is a genie in a bottle. God is a karma dispenser. Is how unfortunately we, we can find ourselves finding him. God is the creator. God is an all-loving God who loves you intimately and uniquely. God knows that we mess up and still loves us. If another human did to us what we do to God on a daily basis, we would want nothing to do with that person. But yet God loves us that much. That's how much we are loved, that although we continue to be unfaithful to him, he is faithful to us and loves us and draws us back to him over and over and over again. So when an almighty God says, find your rest in me, when an Almighty God says, if we go back to uh, Psalm 46, verse 10, uh, a verse you may know that says, uh, be still and know that I am God. Most of my life, it was this idea of, of God saying like, hey, be still. Go sit by a serene source of water. Hear the little waves ripple in and be still and peace. When he's saying be still, it's said in a way that you would, not that I would ever do this, but let's say you have two children and they're fighting and you're trying to get them to stop. And you say, stop! Stop fighting! Be still! Cut it out! What is wrong with you two? Again, that's what I've heard other people say. I would never say that personally. That's what God is saying in this, in this passage in Psalm 4610. He's saying, stop it! Cut it out. And then he says, and know that I am God. What you are striving after every day, the things that you are pursuing, the things that you are chasing after, the things that you desire so much, and they're not aligning with the kingdom of God, they are not aligning with what God's will is for your life, but we strive after them day in and day out, and we fight them. Ecclesiastes says it's like chasing the wind, because even when we think we got it, there's more to be had, and we just keep chasing it. And he's saying, stop it. Cut it out. 
all the stuff that you're toiling in life doing, the stuff that you keep busying your life up with. I always go back to this, uh, there was this time in March of 2020 uh, where everything stopped. I don't know if you remember it or not. And everyone was like, oh my goodness, I can read books. I can do all these things that I've said I wanted to do. I can spend more time with God. Tiger King? What's that? I should watch it. Or whatever it was. I mean, it was, all the sports were canceled. Television shows couldn't be made. I mean, everything stopped. And we found, I'm sorry, and I found ways to busy myself up. Immediately, I became so busy. Again, you can write down, Rob became very busy during COVID. Or you can write, I became very busy during COVID. We did, we just, we, we love busyness. We love filling our calendar up. We love doing these things. And yet, what God is saying so repeatedly is, stop! Stop! I love you. You're my children. I created a time of rest. In fact, in the Old Testament, it was, you can't travel, okay? You can't travel that far. And your animals, they're just going to have to deal with it for a day. You're going to have to do the bare minimum. Why? Because road tripping would have become huge in ancient Israel if you didn't say you can't travel. Why? Because that's what we do. We busy ourselves up. We're always finding something next and what is going to be entertaining for us and what we must do and how do we do it. I'm sorry, what do I do? I keep saying we, I keep meaning to say I. So that's when I come back to, so if we're followers of God, and I'm not saying you can't delight, like he gave us every good thing. He gave us this creation. He has given us wisdom to invent things and give us things. But, so I'm not saying in any way that you can't do those things, but true rest is finding rest in the arms of Christ. True rest is spending time in prayer, spending time in his word, spending time meditating, but also just delighting. If he's given you a wonderful or any kind of a family, delight in the family that God has given you. If he's given you wonderful friends, delight. One of the greatest things from sabbatical I took away was reconnecting as an unbelievably extreme extrovert, reconnecting with people I haven't seen in 20 years, laughing at stories, sharing stories. It was delighting in these relationships that God has brought in my life, uh, people that um, God in his graciousness has kept alive who are much, much older than me, much older than my parents who are still alive, and I was able for the first time to sit down with them and say, thank you for your influence in my life. Thank, I'm so thankful that you listened to God. I remember as a teenager, I was the worst and there was this guy, and he was just the most loving human being, and he would go from all these tiny little, these country little churches, and he would go and he would help the youth group leaders because churches couldn't afford staff, and he was just the most patient, loving man. His name is Rod Whitney, and uh, it was the second to last day before we left, and Rod Whitney walks into the campground with his wife. I haven't seen him since I was like 16, 17 years old. And I pulled him aside and I said, Rod, I am so sorry for probably the massive amount of headaches I caused you when you were trying to teach at our youth group. Like in my mind, I was his worst enemy. And he started laughing and he's now retired and he said, you know, Rob, it's so funny. The amount of kids in youth groups who cause the most amount of problems, in the last several years, they, I've seen a lot of them and they've all come up to me and told me that they were sorry. 
And then they tell me what church they're currently pastoring. And he listed off all these names. I was blown away. Uh, so that's what I call some of our kids. I'm like, oh, that's a future church planner. Like, it's just what they do when they're kids, apparently. So it's delighting in the things that God has given you. It's, it's taking time to say thank you. It's taking time to appreciate that all that God has given you. Number three, and again, these are all kind of inter, intertwined. The third thing I realized is I don't prioritize well. I don't prioritize well. I don't know if there is a priority dyslexia, but if there is, I have it. I get things jumbled up. I get things mixed up. Uh, the thing that I really think is really important is actually like number nine on a list out of eight, and I just can't really keep focused on some things. Why? Well, it goes back to the first two points. I really like myself, and I think I'm pretty awesome, and I also like doing what I want to do. And uh, I'm convinced that the longer that you are in a church or the longer that you're a human being, you build up this volumes of, of a, or libraries full of excuses, and you learn how to take Bible verses and tack them on to things that you want to do and make it sound like it's all right. And I'm great at this. And again, I don't prioritize, I'm selfish, I'm prideful, I don't pray enough, and I, um, what was number two? I don't rest well. These are all inner part of each other. But the reason, again, comes back to why don't I prioritize well is because I prioritize by what Rob wants, not by what God wants. If I prioritize what God wants, it's time with me. We see Jesus repeatedly going off by himself to pray. And I remember hearing somebody when I was younger and just kind of what I thought say, he was going off to pray because he knew how much he needed God. And the more I studied the Bible, I realized, no, he was that close to God, he couldn't imagine going very long without talking to him. The people that you're closest with, you want to talk to all the time. You want to be with, you want to spend time with. The thing that you love the most you want to be with and you can't imagine being very far from it. So why was Jesus always going off by himself to pray? It was a reflection of how close he was with God. Why don't I go off to pray by myself and prioritize that? Because apparently I am not as close to God as I'd like to think that I am. And if I truly love God like I say I do, then I will start to prioritize my time in God's Word. My, I will prioritize my time spent praying, meditating. I will prioritize taking time off from a busy life to spend time with the, the priorities that God has aligned for me. Again, we're going to be going into this section particularly a lot more next week. But it comes back down to, I find awe in myself. I think I'm awesome. And what you think is awesome is what you go to repeatedly. If I think God is awesome and I stand humbled because of everything that he continues to do for me and how much love he shows me every day and the grace and mercy he continues to pour down on me, I will continue to go to him every chance that I get. If I think I am awesome, my priorities, my kingdom, my will rule supreme, and that's where I go to. And I become my own God, and I cannot understand why everybody else doesn't worship me in the way that I feel like I should be worshipped. Why don't people know that my will reigns supreme? No, seriously, why don't people know that? 
So, how do we prioritize? And again, this is going to be really quick. We're going to need this a lot more in depth as we go on the next probably couple of weeks. Priority number one is my relationship with God. As Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Everything about that is going through different worlds, what the Greek world, the Roman world, the Jewish world, all the things that they thought were the center of life, that is what Jesus is saying is anything that could possibly be the most important thing to you in the center of your life, that is what you love God with to its utmost. So number one is our relationship with God. The one, the one thing we say, and you'll see it on the, uh, Sarah's wearing a t-shirt, the love equips send. We say that love stands for love God, love others. If you can love God and love others, everything else falls into place. Why? Because he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first and greatest. The second is like unto it, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? Every human being. So we're breaking it down a little bit more. So number one, it's our relationship with God. Number two, it's your relationship with your spouse and kids. This is, and by the way, it is in that order, your spouse and then your kids. Uh, your spouse takes priority. Uh, this is a God-given command um, that this is while your priorities line up. It is your relationship with God. Now, they are all intertwined with each other. So I want to make that very, very clear. Uh, someone told me, like, oh, I saw this done once, and it was a much, uh, this really cool graph. It's like, Ugh. I should have talked to you earlier this week because I'm just numbering them and then saying these numbers don't matter. But number two, relationship with spouse and kids in that order. That is a God-given responsibility. You are the uh, responsible to God for the people that he has put in your care, the people that are in your house. That is a responsibility to God that you take care of them. Number three, your local church. That is how you demonstrate that you love God your local church. This is his kingdom. Um, I love the, uh, I read a quote recently in a book and they kept saying it over and over again, and it's this, uh, the church doesn't have a mission, God's mission has a church. So when we're wondering what do we do as a church, which we're going to go into in detail next week as well, when we're wondering what do we do as a church, we don't say, well, this is our church's mission. It's like, no, what is God's specific mission and how do we as a church play our role in carrying that out. But with that, and we go back, and the reason that I, I mentioned relationship with your spouse and kids, uh, when we get to church number three, that means that if you are single, according to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul's answering the question of should they marry? He goes, yeah, marrying, that's great, get married. If, if you feel like you want to get married, fantastic, get married. If you don't want to be married, that's also fantastic because you can spend so much more time serving your church serving the local body of believers and reaching your community. So that's, again, a command of God. So single people, it's one and then three. And then number four, seeking what is best for everyone else. We seek what is best for everyone else. Now these are all intertwined with each other. So uh, sometimes I hear... Um, People say, well, I know like, church is important, but I also need to spend some time with my kids. Yes, you do. But your kids know if you are begrudgingly going to church and if you are happily missing church to spend time with them. 
Now, I'm not saying come to church every Saturday night or else. We are a Saturday night church. We literally felt called by God to do Saturday night church so that people who work in, I promise I was going to say this before you walked in, Luke, people that work in hospitals can come to church, people that work police, like the people that can't go to church on Sunday mornings can feel comfortable coming to church. But we also know we compete with birthday parties and weddings and you name it. So I'm not saying come to church every Saturday night or else. Why? Because the church is so much bigger than church on Saturday night. The church is so much bigger than this. Church is what happens during the course of a week. Church is what happens when we have opportunities to serve one another. The Bible talks about one another, I think it's 62 times of how we are to love one another, what we are to do for one another. Some of those are greet one another with a holy kiss, so it lowers it. I don't have the numbers down correctly. Uh, But we are to, you can do that if you want, but make sure the other person is okay with it. Um, But we are to all these things intertwine. So how do you love God? You love God by demonstrating that you love the church. Why? The church is the body and bride of Christ. So if you say that you like me, but you can't stand my wife, we're not going to be very good friends. But we do that to God all the time. We do that to Jesus all the time. Jesus, I love you. I'm so thankful for you. Please don't make me go with those people at that church. First John says, if you say you love God, but hate your brother, you are a liar and the love of God is not in you. So, it's the hardest thing that we can possibly do, and if, we, if you understand the ancient world and you understand the people that were coming to the churches, they were the worst! They hated each other's guts in the street! They were masters and slaves. They were Jews and Samaritans. I mean, every form of racism, every form of hatred, every form of abuse, these now people were coming to know Christ and they were walking in the same place where they would gather, and at that time it could have been a cave, it could have been a hall, a home. They would walk in and they would see the person... And they couldn't believe it. And then the person leading the church would open up a letter from 1 John and say, love one another, for the love of God isn't in you. That's a dilemma. I don't love that person. I know what that person did to me. That person killed my family, and it was okay because he's a Roman citizen and mine were slaves. And I have to love them? That's what makes the church stand out in a world where we are told then it's okay to hate, is that we love each other no matter what. That's how we love our our spouse and that's how we love our children is we take them into these environments and we demonstrate through our example why we love other people the way that we do is because of how much Jesus did for us. If you have children, understand your children are watching everything you do and they know that if If going to church is a joke to you, they know it. You might have everyone else fooled, they know it. And then this, I worked in youth groups for many, many years. I traveled around setting up youth groups, I helped establish youth groups, I worked with teens. And um, if you don't know this about me, I can be blunt. And I was even way worse when I was younger. And I had a parent come up to me and I'd been leading a youth group for a couple, I think it was only like six months, and he said, hey, so you've been in charge for six months and we haven't really seen a lot of spiritual growth in our kids. And maybe I shouldn't have said this. I said, uh, oh, well, that makes sense. They see me twice a week. They see me on Sunday night. They see me on Friday night. They see you every day. How often are you reading your Bible in front of your kids? How many times have you told your kids what God's word meant to you that day? How many times have you prayed with your kids? How many times have you prayed with, these are three teenagers. How many times have you prayed with your teenager? How many times have you, you prayed as a family? How are your kids watching you rely on God? 
we stayed friends afterwards. <laughs> and I don't know where it came from. And again, it was very easy for me to say I wasn't married and I didn't have kids at the time. It's very easy to tell other people what they should do with their kids when you don't have kids. But I, that's hung with me. And now that I have two boys, it's hung with me. As are my children seeing me go to church and play church when there's church things? Or do they know that this is something that affects my heart and soul and mind every day of the week and every hour? Do they see that it's something that is truly at my core and something that I love? Or am I demonstrating that it's something that I'm obligated to do? But just know that is also happening with you as well. None of that was in my notes. And then how do we love other people? The best way to love other people is to point them to Christ. The best way we can love other people is to point them to Christ. I just uh, heard a stat before we left. Um, again, this isn't in my notes, and I'm going along. I promised the kids that I would go short. Number five, I'm a liar. Uh, but again, you've had it easy all summer. These guys went really like 20, 25, come on, that's, that's really short. Um, in two years, the greater Charleston area will have 1% single digits, I'm sorry, single digit population of evangelical Christians. When we hear that a country somewhere overseas is in the um, single digit, one through nine percent, and that's it, of evangelical Christians, we try to send missionaries there as soon as possible. That's going to be the greater Charleston area in the next two years. Right now, on any given Sunday, this is the other thing I learned, um, when I was in the Northeast, and I hope I'm not offending anybody, I grew up mainly in the Northeast, um, if you ask somebody, like, oh, do you go to church? They'd say no. Um, they didn't care. They would say other very unkind things that I won't say with children in the room. And that was pretty normal. So when I moved to Virginia, people, everyone went to church. So I started asking questions. So I was like, oh, really? What church do you go to? Oh, I go to this church. And it's usually like a really big church. And I'd be like, oh, were you there this last week? And they'd be like, uh, no, no, I wasn't there this last week. Were you there the week before? No, and they'd start getting really uncomfortable. I was like, when's the last time you were there? Like, uh, it's been a while. They're like, um, well, a while like three years, a while like 30 years? Like, what? Well, I'll see you later, and they'd go. And I worked with a guy who's lived in Virginia his whole life in that area, and he was about 50 years old at the time, and he would always just go like this. He said, Rob, in the South, we don't ask follow-up questions. If someone says they go to church, great. That's it. Stop doing that. So then I started doing it all the time. So when we first moved down here and we had people and everyone's like, Rob, you know, we're talking to our neighbors. We're Everybody goes to church. It's great. Like, what a great community. Everybody goes to church. I was like, come with me to Lowe's on a Sunday morning. Come with me to, you pick a restaurant. The place is packed. Like, wherever you go on a Sunday morning, it is jammed. Go to the beach. It's packed. Go. So no, it's just a bunch of liars. That all claim a church that they don't actually go to. Statistically speaking, only 10% of the greater Charleston area goes to church on the weekend. And so how do we love others? We point them to Christ. There was a study done, uh, I want to say like five years ago, uh, because there was such an influx of people moving here that uh, they did these huge surveys in all the different areas. So in Somerville, within five miles of this church, uh, they broke it all down. And within five miles of this church, there are two things that people are the most scared of. One is dying. 
That was number one. Only two points less, the second biggest fear was not having a community, not having friends, not feeling like they found a place to belong. What are the top two things we hope to communicate as a church? What are the top two things that we hope to communicate as people who say that we know and love Jesus? Number one, you don't have to be scared of dying, that Jesus loves you, gave his life for you, rose again so that if you have life in him, you have life eternally with him, and you have life here on earth with hope and with meaning and with joy. And two, that you are loved, that we will welcome you in with open arms, that you can feel loved, that you can feel a sense of community, that you will be loved no matter what. 